This podcast is brought to you by Jack's Outdoor Gear Farm and Ranch. Jack's is helping local communities by offering curbside pickup. Jack's understands that many of their customers, especially in the ag and farm community, rely on them for essential items. The lives of their livestock, critters, and pets continue to go on and require daily care. Jack's is committed to serving those needs while doing everything they can to protect their customers, employees, and community. Call any one of their six Colorado locations, and now in Cheyenne, to arrange curbside pickup, or visit them online at jacksgoods.com. At the end of March, I saddled up my bike and pedaled off in the direction of Colorado State University. It took me about 10 minutes to reach campus, and another two to get to the Oval, the historic heart of the Fort Collins University, its tree-lined pride and joy. The Oval dates back about 110 years, and it's bordered by historic sandstone and limestone brick buildings. Back in the day, this is where everything was. CSU's Student Union, the university's stately library, and just at the Oval's southwestern curve, there's the statistics building. Well, there it is. This building is massive. Three stories tall and more than 2,500 square feet, with Mediterranean-style arched doorways, stained glass windows, and a grand double staircase. After weeks of research, I'd learned that this building was central to one of the biggest and saddest chapters in Fort Collins history, the 1918 influenza pandemic, better known as the Spanish flu. In the fall and winter of 1918 and 1919, the statistics building, then the civil and irrigation engineering building, was turned into a pop-up hospital to serve students and young army recruits sickened by the Spanish flu. Like every other corner of the world, Fort Collins and Colorado as a whole were ravaged by the pandemic. Hospitals filled up, businesses closed, schools shut down, streets were empty, social distancing was encouraged. Sound familiar? It felt eerie that day, standing in front of this old building, trying to peek into its locked and darkened doors. More than a hundred years ago, it was Fort Collins' ground zero for what epidemiologists now call the mother of all pandemics. Now, we're living through the latest one, as coronavirus upends daily life, both across the world and close to home. You see, I'm a history nerd, and even I didn't really give much thought to the Spanish flu before all of this. It was so long ago, and life just kind of went on. Memories fade as they do. Stories stopped being told. But there's something honorable about stepping back into time to remember and learn from the people who came before us. Their experiences are our history. And the funny thing about history, it tends to repeat itself. 
You're listening to episode 25 of The Way It Was. A century later, inside the Spanish flu. So, um, we know that the first um, flu death was uh, in Colorado, in Denver. Blanche Kennedy, she was the University of Denver student. And after her, uh, that was September 27, 1918. And after her death, the city, the state actually got a little bit more concerned about the Spanish flu. That is Susie Riding, a local history buff and one of the guides for Fort Collins's Magic Bus Tours company. And Susie is running me through her research into the Spanish flu, which she talks about often on her Forbidden Fort Collins tour. According to the Centers for Disease Control, the origin of the Spanish flu is a little hazy. Spain was hit really hard with it, but it likely didn't come from there. It was first reported in Europe, parts of Asia, and the United States in the spring of 1918. And back then, the symptoms were mild, just chills, fever, fatigue, kind of like a normal flu. It wasn't until that following fall that the virus seemed to come back and this time with a vengeance. You would see reports, follow reports of, like, say, a young man that um, had been ill for weeks, be on the brink of death, and then recover. And then you'd read about uh, a man who woke up feeling fine and he was dead by the evening. It was just very, very, very unpredictable that way. Its symptoms were severe this time around, often settling into its victims' lungs. It particularly affected young people, ages 20 to 40. And with many young servicemen mobilizing around Europe and the U.S., including to Army training programs on college campuses like CSUs, it spread like wildfire. After the September 1918 death of a University of Denver student, Efforts to curb the virus in Colorado finally ramped up. About a month later, those efforts seemed to reach northern Colorado. So, um, Ludland and Fort Collins really didn't take it too seriously though, until October 14, 1918. And that's when a young 26-year-old uh, wife and mother, uh, she had one child, um, died at at the emergency hospital, Um, and um, the emergency hospital was located where the um, Oaks building uh, is now down in Loveland, and um, after her death, um, just within days, five more people died, so uh, six people uh, in the Loveland community died, so then... um, the city started taking this a little bit, a lot more seriously. Um, two days later, October 16th, uh, Fort Collins had its first flu death, Joseph Flanders. He was actually with the Student Army Training Corps, um, and he was moved from the barracks on the Oval um, to the city hospital, which was uh, located on Remington and um, Magnolia. But he died, and then his civilian died uh, right after him. 
So this really, really put a a scare um, on the community. So they really, really cracked down on the uh, on the quarantines. When the second wave of the Spanish flu hit, Fort Collins and particularly CSU were not the best places to be. Because World War I was still raging, that wouldn't end until November, the university saw an influx of young servicemen coming to campus as part of the Students' Army Training Corps. By August 1918, there were 300 more men than usual on campus, according to the Mile High College, a book detailing CSU's early history. And remember, these young people were the most susceptible to this virus. By early October 1918, a new crop of recruits were inducted into the Corps on campus. Reportedly, at the end of the day, a federal officer in charge turned to the university's president, Charles Lorry. Is there any influenza in the group, he asked. Lorry's response? No. Just three days later, three cases had developed on campus, which then jumped to 30 by October 12th and 94 by October 14th. One night that month, 150 recruits arrived as part of the training corps, and within 24 hours, half of them were in the hospital with influenza, and one was dead. If you think about worldwide um, movement of troops, they were often the ones who were bringing it into new places. And then you could, then there were also circumstances that are pretty well described where recruits were brought into military bases within the United States and then got sick, and a high percentage of them died as a result. But the troop ships were um, kind of a perfect vehicle for transmission of the virus from person to person if there was an infected person on the ship. That's Lorraine Stallins, a professor in CSU's Department of Psychology. Her academic training is in public health and epidemiology. According to Stalin's The Spanish Flu, or the 1918 influenza pandemic, as it's largely known in academic circles, was really historic because of its severity of symptoms, its high death rate, and its quick spread throughout the world. According to the CDC, this flu pandemic infected roughly one-third of the world's population, killing an estimated 50 million people worldwide, including 675,000 in the U.S. and about 8,000 in Colorado. Remember, we also didn't have the vaccines and treatments that we do now. Communities largely just had to ride it out. What were some of the things that that we learned from the 1918? (laughs) I have to laugh because... You're hearing exactly those things right now. Um, People needed to isolate. Communities needed to shut their doors and and keep people away from each other, make sure that they wash their hands. I mean, basically, those same uh, practices were being um, touted as the public health interventions at the time of the pandemic flu. And in those communities where they actually were very... um, 
proactive in doing those things, they did tend to have a, a less severe or less likely transmission um, within the community. And one of the examples is actually Gunnison, Colorado. Have you read about that? I actually just got on the phone a couple hours ago with a historian in Gunnison, yes. Um, excellent, excellent. That's a wonderful story. And that's a story you'll hear right after this quick message from our sponsor. The promise of spring and all that it brings is in the air. Now is the time for outdoor projects, and Jack's Farm and Ranch has everything you need to get started. From outdoor power equipment to soil, fertilizer, seeds, fencing, and more, it's time to prep your garden and flower beds and check off the projects on your spring outdoor list. Jack's is now offering curbside pickup. Visit their website at jacksgoods.com to place an order or find the contact information for the store nearest to you. Gunnison is is a fairly isolated mountain valley, uh, and in 1918, it had fairly limited access by automobile. Uh, Monarch Pass, today's Monarch Pass, uh, wasn't there. Uh, the only route in by automobile in the uh, in the teens was Coach Tote Pass, which is uh, south of Monarch Pass, uh, and from the west uh, was Highway 50. Uh, but both of those highways uh, in the in the winter were closed to car traffic because we just didn't have the winter maintenance that we did uh, that we do today. And so when this epidemic uh, started in October, uh, there was some car traffic because the snow hadn't uh, hit yet. But but by the time you get to December, early January, most people in Gunnison put their cars up on blocks and uh, just came in by train. That's David Primus, a historian in Gunnison, Colorado, who writes often about Gunnison's past for its local newspaper, the Gunnison Country Times. The steps... Uh, Gunnison took uh, were initiated, I think, by the governor of Colorado at the time, a guy named Julius Gunter, uh, and he asked all local authorities to ban public uh, gatherings in early October of 1918. And uh, Gunnison was one of the few communities, as I understand it, in Colorado that kind of took him to heart. And uh, on October 18th, um, the Board of Health, local Gunnison Board of Health, decided to close all the schools and churches and banned parties and street gatherings. And uh, according to the research I've done, you know, most people in Gunnison felt that this was obviously a hardship, but they were very supportive because at the time there were reports of the flu uh, in nearby towns, uh, and they felt that it was going to hit here pretty soon. But Gunnison didn't just stop there. Then on the 1st of November, uh, the, the Gunnison still had no reported cases, uh, and but the flu was all around Gunnison, uh, reported in towns all around Gunnison. And so a guy named F.P. Hansen, uh, the county physician, uh, decided to quarantine the town, which was a, a pretty major step that uh, most other towns in Colorado and, and the United States didn't take. Um, 
and uh, and uh, he did that by um, by uh, erecting barricades and fences um, on all the main highways uh, into town. And uh, there were signs at all those barricades saying that if you were driving into town, uh, you uh, could drive through, but if you got out of your car, you had to submit to a two-day quarantine. And um, and then uh, if you came in by the train, the same thing. If you stayed on if you stayed on the train when when it stopped at the depot, uh, you were fine. But if you stepped off the train, uh, they would put you uh, immediately in a quarantine. And uh, one of Colorado senators, a guy named uh, Senator Sapp. Uh, decided uh, to test that, and he stepped off onto the platform and was immediately uh, put into quarantine. So Gunnison was serious about it. Gunnison County was lucky in that it was already pretty geographically isolated. Located about 200 miles southwest of Denver in a high mountain valley, the only way really to get into Gunnison, the town, in the winter was by train. So they were able to take such strict measures. And, like with Senator Sapp, they enforced them. There was a couple of men traveling from Nebraska to Delta in western Colorado, uh, and they uh, broke through the barricades on Cochito Pass, which was the pass, uh, the car road coming in from the east at the time, and they stopped at a little town uh, called Parlin, and uh, the, the papers said... Uh, they were expressing their opinions very forcibly while there. Uh, the locals weren't very impressed. In other words, they were pretty upset that we had this quarantine, and the locals weren't very impressed with that, and they called uh, Dr. Hansen, uh, who's the county physician. Uh, he called the sheriff, and the sheriff met him on the road, and uh, they were pretending to have car trouble. And the paper said... Uh, the sheriff showed them real car trouble. He disabled their engine and took them right to jail. This went on for months in Gunnison. From November 1918 through the start of 1919, the county was pretty much shuttered. And then late February, they decided things were looking pretty good, and they lifted the quarantine completely. Uh, but that was proved to be a mistake, because after only a few weeks uh there were flu cases uh, reported all over the county, uh, and at least four people uh, died. But overall, uh, you know, Gunnison um, was successful in, in fighting the, the great influenza. They only had uh, 58 cases of the flu and just a few deaths. Um, compare that to Silverton, Colorado, which is even more isolated than Gunnison, and uh, Silverton, uh, you know, lost, like, I've heard as many as a third of the population. Unlike Gunnison, Fort Collins wasn't super locked down. But like Gunnison, its people were still getting antsy. According to Susie Riding, rises in flu cases in northern Colorado always followed after officials loosened their restrictions— bowing to pressures from residents and business owners who were feeling the squeeze. They would see um, periods where um, there wouldn't be new cases. Um, the deaths would fall off. 
a little bit. And so they kind of relaxed the quarantine again. And every time they did that, there'd be like a new spate of cases and, and deaths. The percentage of people who got cases and the percentage of people who died was extremely low, even though it was a lot. Um, from my estimation, it was between um, 100. We had 126 by Christmas and then a few more cases after that to March and April. And is that, in, is that infected cases or, or fatalities? Oh, I'm sorry, fatalities. I should have clarified that. We had hundreds and hundreds of cases, but 126 fatalities in Fort Collins by Christmas and um, uh, just a few more. Uh, in. We had eight fatalities between January and February and then um, and then just a few more March and April. So about probably 145, 150 fatalities. Wow. Um, and and that's that hits a community hard when there's 8,700 people in the town. That's a lot of people. By the summer of 1919, cases largely stopped in the U.S. Schools started back up again, and CSU's makeshift Spanish flu hospital dismantled, once again serving its students as the civil and irrigation engineering building. In a handful of oral histories kept by the Fort Collins History Archive, Residents recall what the pandemic was like, about how it wiped out almost entire families and spiked after large gatherings. One man, Ira Dickinson, was 24 and working for CSU in 1918. He recalled in a 1974 oral history interview that the epidemic hit right around the end of World War I. Soldiers were still living in CSU's barracks near the Oval at the time, and by the way, I recalled the oval, the circle. I drove a truck for the college farm, he said, and a lot of those boys had died of the flu. I used to have to pick up their trunks and take them back down and ship them home to their folks. It was terrible. Dickinson died in 1978. His memories were just a few of those rarely preserved in Fort Collins. Not much of the Spanish flu was really recorded in the area except for in newspaper archives and cemetery records, which writing painstakingly searched through when looking into this pandemic about four years ago. I asked her at the end of our interview if there were any memorials set up around Fort Collins, memorials for the victims of the Spanish flu. Not to my knowledge. Um, there really isn't. And uh, and, I, and I really believe that there, sh- there should be more... Um, more about the Spanish flu in the community. My tour guests really loved hearing about it. It's something that isn't talked about a lot in the community. Uh, Fort Collins not only was getting daily reports of uh, hometown kids that were dying in World War One, but they were also getting a list of people who had died overnight of the flu. And, uh, and so it was just a really devastating time in our history. As history experts in their respective communities, I asked both David Primus and Susie Riding what it was like, knowing all that they do about the Spanish flu, to be living through a global pandemic right now. Well, it's a little bizarre. Uh, I mean, to start with, I've researched the Spanish flu enough and I've kind of kept up with things enough to know that, uh, you know, experts 
in the field have often said that something like this uh, is going to happen. It's a question, not a question of if, it's a question of when. And so I always knew this was a potential, but it doesn't happen that often in history. The Spanish flu was 102 years ago. Um, so it's it's really bizarre to me, um, especially when I reflect back to uh, less than two weeks ago uh, where somebody asked me if we would take the same steps that we took you know, here in Gunnison in uh, 1918, and I said, I kind of laughed, and I said, no, I, I don't, I don't think we'd do that. I don't think we have the, you know, the guts, I guess, to to institute such strong measures. And here it is, less than two weeks later, and I believe I was wrong. Especially Gunnison County has really instituted strict major measures, uh, much stricter than most other uh, counties in Colorado. So because I've studied this so much and I've looked at all the numbers and the statistics and the data and who died, how many died out of, you know, who caught it, what the population was like. And um, I, I'm optimistic. Um, and I told my, uh, my son this the other day. Um, um, Fort Collins... In early stages of the Spanish flu, they did exactly what we're doing. They uh, quarantined, they um, social distancing, what they called it the flu ban. Um, they did, you know, everything they were supposed to do, and the numbers would drop. Then they'd get a little optimistic, and then they'd go out, and then the numbers would rise again. Um, and that went off and on, as you know, between October and December. I, I know we're going to get through this. Um, the Fort Collins community got through it. I knew it was very scary for them. They, um, but they got, um, they got through it. A lot has changed in Fort Collins since the Spanish flu swept through the small college town more than a hundred years ago. There may not be any memorials, any benches. The closest thing to that would be the statistics building at CSU or the sprinkling of headstones across northern Colorado that were erected in 1918 and 1919. And now there's this podcast episode, which I hope taught you a little something, told you a story you hadn't heard before, or maybe even proved that, yes, there are tough times, but one day, there'll be history. Under 29, men and women killed dying from a disease, what the doctor called a flu. People died everywhere, death went creeping through the air. Father grown, after sick, sure was saying, it was God's almighty hand. I'm Erin Udell, and you just finished the 25th episode of The Way It Was, a podcast podcast produced by the Fort Collins Coloradoan and sponsored by Jack's Outdoor Gear Farm and Ranch. If you'd like to see some truly stunning photographs of Spanish flu patients inside CSU's makeshift hospital, head to coloradoan.com/news/history. And if you can't get enough local history, sign up today for the Coloradoan's new monthly history newsletter by going to coloradoan.com/newsletters. If you don't already, please subscribe to The Coloradoan to support our work 
by going to coloradoin.com slash podcast offer. Special thanks go out to Susie Riding, David Primus, and Lorraine Stallins for their help on this episode. All the songs you heard in this episode are from the Library of Congress's audio archive. Well, that does it for me, everyone. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay curious, history nerds. It was God's almighty hand, he is judging this old land. North and south, east and west can be seen. Yes. This podcast was brought to you by Jack's Outdoor Gear Farm and Ranch. For 65 years, Jack's has been helping people get outdoors having fun. Jack's encourages our community to be safe and healthy, to get outdoors responsibly and to find adventures close to home, even in your own backyard. Jax is now offering curbside pickup to make sure you're prepared for whatever you need. Visit their website at jaxgoods.com to place an order or find the contact information for the store nearest to you.